Assalamu alaikum thank you so much for tuning into Kosher Muslimah this is our sixth podcast and in the previous podcast we talked about how the Indian state attempts at normalizing its occupation of Kashmir and how various forms of power are used to conceal the violent nature of occupation in this podcast today we'd be discussing the themes of Islam Kashmir and colonialism and for this very important conversation we have with us a very special guest we have with us Dr Salman Said who is a professor of political theory and decolonial thought at University of Leeds. Professor Salman Said has published many works on the subjects of Islam and decoloniality and he is the author of Recalling the Caliphate, Decolonization and World Order and another very important book called Fundamental Fair Eurocentrism and the Emergence of Islamism. So professor I read your book called Recalling the Caliphate and I wanted to ask you this first of all when you talk about caliphate what exactly is it that you mean and why do you think that caliphate as an idea and also as a socio political reality is important for the decolonization of muslims Okay Well thank you for that question um I think it might be useful to be clear that the argument that i make about the caliphate really is um looks at the history of the caliphate or the concept of the caliphate um after 1924 when as you know it was um virtually uh, um abolished now the question i ask myself is this that in many ways the throughout the muslim world um you know you have a situation in many many people who were affected by the theoretical and philosophical implications of that act so when the caliphate was abolished not only in south asia but also in, in what is now indonesia many places in tunisia all over um there were many um it was a there was a great um sense of um disquiet among much muslim public opinion uh, which often gets uh, marginalized or neglected in in the counts of the time so what i understand the caliphate to be is, is really to try and understand what it represents and when you speak to most muslims um they will argue for something if you say that do you if you ask most muslims do you believe in uh, muslim unity most of them would say yes and they may say well it's impractical because of this and this but in principle they would agree with it similarly with the idea of the caliphate was um among muslims from you know from the beginning of the um well the beginning of the caliphate that um there were bad um caliphs but the institution itself was worth something now if you put this into the contemporary context what does the caliphate the idea of the caliphate mean the caliphate in this context is really a response to a recognition among muslim populations throughout this planet that they have very little political representation or voice 
you can see this very starkly in places like Palestine, Kashmir, what happened to the Rohingya, what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, you can see this in many, many different cases where there's a disempowerment and there's no one to speak authoritatively on behalf of Muslims, to mobilize for Muslims, to um, allow their grievances to be heard and acted upon. And part of the reason is that there is no Muslim um, great power. There is no uh, power um, which sees its um, reason for being is uh, um, representing the Muslim uh, population of this planet. So the caliphate then, in that situation, becomes a metaphor for a different kind of political arrangement which would empower Muslims to be allowed to be Muslims, um, to defend them and when they are being attacked, to help promote them, um, to construct a different way of life. So in that sense, the caliphate in its proper kind of understanding is really against the current order of the world in which Muslimness is heavily um, regulated, disciplined, and under constant threat of erasure, from France to Burma, from, you know, it, 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 the, the kind of attacks and the attempt to erase Muslimness is becoming one of the fundamental dimensions of the international um, system. This makes a lot of sense. And it also brings me to the second question that I was meaning to ask you, which is that why is it that certain modes of political identities or certain forms of political subjectivity, certain ways of organizing a political community are considered to be more acceptable, more real and more accurate than other forms of political subjectivities? For example, a political identity that is based on language, a political community that is formed on the basis of ethnicity, these are considered to be normal, acceptable forms of political subjectivities but the moment you talk about a Muslim political subjectivity the moment you talk about the formation of a political community in which Muslimness and Islam constitute the central domain immediately this notion is criminalized now this depoliticization of what being a Muslim means this depoliticization of Islam doesn't make much sense to me because as a Kashmiri Muslim when I would go through the resistance slogans of Kashmir what you would fail not to notice is the undeniable and the pervasive presence of Islam and Muslimness in the way people articulate their political imaginations and their political visions. And there are many slogans that show this, one of them being Azadi ka matlab kya la ilaha illallah, which translates into what is freedom but that there is no God but Allah. Now this is a decolonial declaration. This challenges and refutes India's colonial sovereignty in Kashmir. Now, the colonizer doesn't just demand physical submission from the colonized Muslim population in Kashmir. It also wants to occupy their souls and unconditional and total servitude and submission for Muslims is for God alone. And the submission that the colonizer demands stands at odds with it. What are your thoughts about this? This is the, you know, very, very um, fundamental and crucial question. Um, 
let me let me start off with um, two things. Firstly, uh, what you describe in Kashmir is, of course, something um, which is not unique to Kashmir. If you look at, for example, um, the resistance in Algiers against the um, Algerian occupation, um, it was completely imbibed by Muslimness. However, um, someone like Fanon, you know, writing about it early on, and many of the kind of um, leftists who wrote about the Algerian, um, uh, you know, um, struggle for freedom, erases erase that. They simply erase that Muslimness from it. And part of it goes back to the domination of particular kind of two types of Eurocentric narratives. Uh, one, a Eurocentric narrative of the left, which simply um, sees Islam as a religion and sees religion as a um, attempt uh, to f falsify reality, you know, and, and, and this has kind of been constant. So if you think about the left um, going from all the way from the kind of um, Soviet regimes to um, to sort of more social democratic regimes, there is always a sense of a certain kind of secularity which is considered to be um, in keeping with scientific developments. Similarly, on the sort of uh, Eurocentric right, you also have the idea that it's not... Um, that religion is superficial or religious and Islam is a religion and religion is superficial compared to what really matters, which is um, race or ethnicity. So if the left think about class and um, the right think about race, and I'm making this um, very simple, both of these constructions have a common uh, beginning, which is that denial of the political. And what I mean by this is that one of the most persistent claims that white supremacy, Eurocentricism, uh, the colonial world order makes for itself is that it is the only patrimony of the political. It is basically the where history is. Uh, it, the world it, that is made today, history is basically Western history and hits the division between people with history and people without history. Now, most often this is expressed in relation to the idea of so-called a non-state societies or primitive people who don't have writing and they don't have um, monumental architecture. It said that they, but the idea of people without history is actually much greater than that. So um, it really means that those who are not involved in historical developments and the historical only historical development is the one which happens in Europe. So Europe, European history becomes a model for the history of the world and everyone in the world has to try and find where they fit into those European developments. And that becomes the um, criteria by which all judgments um, about historical factors is made. So in that idea of people without history, it is the, uh, you are depriving people without history of agency. And 
in both cases, both with the question of class and the question of race, it deprives the notion of agency, which is actually the notion of the political, um, by saying that they're already existing units, either derived by genetics or derived by economy, rather than seeing that the work of politics is actually the work of um, agency. It's about the work of collective formations. And part of this is to deny that there is any political agency outside the pale of Western supremacy. To give you a very short example, which I often use, when you ever read about conflict between, uh, let's say, Britain or France or France and Germany, it is always talked about in relation to specific issues, whether territory, trade, imperial rivalries, etc. You read about conflicts outside the West, they're always, nearly always, very often described not in terms of uh, issues, but in terms of ancient hatreds. Um, you know, the conflict is always seen as being something beyond history. It's always existed. It's like spiders and scorpions will always fight. Um, and there is no recognition of the transformations that make place. To give you a contemporary example, in the first six months of what, you know, the so-called Arab Spring in, in Syria, there was a uh, conflict in Syria between those who opposed the uh, Ba'athist regime and those who supported it. That conflict was reinterpreted, redescribed as a conflict between Shia and Sunni. And then the Shia and Sunni conflict was seen as a conflict which goes back making a mockery of the fact that the it's been a very complicated relationship. It's never been a conflict that can be read throughout 1400 years, at this, all the time. So what you have, and you know, in, 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 in all of these cases, the identification, a pol political identification is preserved for whiteness, for Europeanness, and all others have to have an identification or a subjectivity which is given to them by history rather than something that they make for themselves. And that, I would argue, is one of the most persistent um, features of Orientalism, which continue to dominate the way we understand not only the non-Western world, but the world itself. True. And a study of Kashmir liberation struggle would make it very clear that this struggle for liberation, this struggle for self-determination, is closely tied to the Kashmiri Muslim population. Now, we are talking about a military occupation, and you don't have to be a Muslim or a Kashmiri Muslim to acknowledge that India has occupied Kashmir, it has colonized it. But it's also a fact that it's the Kashmiri Muslim population that has felt that they have been occupied that has felt that they have been colonized. And it's them who have led the resistance against it. Otherwise, when you talk about the community of Kashmiri Pandits, Kashmiri Brahmins, what you notice is that they have been largely very comfortable with Indian rule in Kashmir and profited from it at the expense of Kashmiri Muslims. And another thing that's important is that the occupation of Kashmir by the Indian state is not just a military enterprise. 
it's also a project of cultural imperialism and this project has not invested into anything more than it has into depoliticizing islam and indianizing it so it doesn't make much sense to me when people talk about erasing islam from kashmir's self-determination or liberation struggle what are your thoughts about this well, I think what you describe acutely is one of the kind of dilemmas. So, for example, within Kashmir, within Palestine, and many other places, you will have um, people who are uh, activists for liberation who take a nationalist line. And there are others who take a, um, kind of say, a line based on Muslimness. Now, the difficulty is this, that on the ground, most of them find it very, very difficult to mobilize uh, populations, except in terms of Muslimness. And the consequences of that is two things. One, unless they are able to reflect upon this, that if they want the people and the people think of themselves as Muslims, then they can't think of them in sort of Western or Eurocentric nationalist terms. It doesn't make sense to do that. But the consequence of this is um, if and when these movements are successful, they are very, very likely to reproduce that Eurocentric Orientalist logic um, by not becoming engines of liberation, but engines of repression, as has happened, for example, let's say in places like Bangladesh, or you could even argue in Pakistan or in many Muslim countries. So let me, exp let me sort of put this together. If you start saying, so take something like um, the, uh, you know, it's 50 years from the um, tragedy when, um, when West Pakistan broke away from Pakistan. Now I say this in a way because normally the narrative is that it was East Pakistan that broke away from Pakistan. But I could argue that the true spirit of Pakistan, the Pakistan project, remained in what is um, East Pakistan and Bangladesh. It was actually the establishment of what is what was then West Pakistan, which created the conditions, both long term and then through its own um, stupidity and corruption and venality, short term, which broke apart the largest Muslim country that had existed up to that time, uh, was existing at the time there. And how did they do this? They did this by not understanding that Pakistan was um, for Muslims, Muslimness, but internalizing British colonial discourse uh, um, in its racial logics. So they saw the people from East Pakistan not as Muslims, but as Bengalis, and they internalized the um, British understanding and British representation of what it meant to be Bengali. Remember, Bengal had suffered British rule for 200 years. They knew what the British were like better than many other parts of um, South Asia. And what they tried to do is rather than create and recognize the Muslimness that brought uh, Pakistan into being, they tried to turn with limited success in this case, Pakistan into a national state. Now, they were limited, limited successful, but what has happened since then Bangladesh 
is the attempt to create so-called secular state, which is basically a state in which Muslimness is under heavy repression, which allows a very kind of um, a, a regime which is more and more divorced from its people and more and more dependent on external factors uh, and external support to remain in power. I mean, you know, people saw the kind of protests against uh, Modi's visit and how that was um, greeted with a heavy hand by Dhaka. So in this kind of logic that I would say to you is between the idea of Muslimness as being simply religion is really one of the biggest problems that we face because part of it is a misunderstanding of Islam as a religion and religion is simply Christianity or enlightenment reading of Western Christianity. By that token, Islam is not only a religion, it's a defective religion like all other religions. But it takes away what actually Muslimness is, which most Muslims understand in their everyday life intuitively, that Islam exceeds simply what could be understood by the template of religion. It's interesting the way you conceptualize it. And I also happened to read one of your articles in Critical Muslim Studies on the meaning of Pakistan. And in that article, you posited that the idea of Pakistan was an idea of a Muslim political subjectivity, an idea in which it was being a Muslim that was the primary determinant in the formation of one's self, one's identity, and also in the formation of the political community. But according to you, as Pakistan came into being uh, as a social reality, it moved away from this ideal and it adopted a Westphalian, a Kamalist discourse on nation and state building, and this also led to its breakup in 1971-1972. I would like to connect this idea to Kashmir. There's this discourse on self-determination uh, in Kashmir, very prevalent, and also outside Kashmir, uh, in the conversations that happen on Kashmir. But for many Kashmiri Muslims, not all of them, but a sizable amount of Kashmiri Muslims, the idea of self-determination, the idea of liberation, the idea of azadi, does not translate into the idea of having a separate, sovereign Kashmiri nation-state. For them, azadi or self-determination is more of a bridge through which they can form a unified political community with the Muslims in Pakistan. Now, there is no ethnic or linguistic commonality between a Muslim living in Punjab and a Muslim living in Kashmir Valley or a Sindhi Muslim and a Kashmiri Muslim. What is interesting is that for these Kashmiri Muslims, it's not ethnicity or language that determines your identity primarily, but Islam. So in this exercise of self-determination, in this conceptualization of self-determination, do you see a disruption of Kamalist hegemony a disruption of Eurocentric notions of what it means to be a nation. What are your thoughts about this? I mean, the short answer is I do, because one of the problems right now is this, that the um, 
idea of national liberation struggles um, and the possibilities of national liberation struggles are really heavily circumscribed in the post-Cold War um, era. So if you think about in the 1950s, 1960s, up to 1970s, national liberation struggles could meant leaving the um, European empires mainly and leveraging support from the Soviet Union or some other forces to enable that national liberation within that kind of lexicon of um, national secularist kind of values. And the balance of forces was such that this was possible. What the uh, liberation struggles face in a world of unipolarity is the inability to balance their uh, demands for freedom with um, their kind of international environment which could enable that. So that's the first kind of restrictions. There's no one three to go to. Now, the other issue which I sort of commented upon is that for Muslim groups, for historical reasons, they face a point in which there are no major powers in the world which you could say would be willing to um, support, sponsor, defend Muslim liberation. Because all of them, for a variety of reasons, have a Muslim problem. So if you think about, for example, um, China's 25-year security agreement with Iran or its support of um, Pakistan or Turkey, it is completely bought at the expense of the Uyghurs. Yeah? If someone wants to, a, a, a Muslim, um, uh, you know, beleaguered Muslim community wants to mobilize um, the European Union, it must do so at the expense of Muslims um, where Europe is involved in conflict with them. With the United States, you have to do it at the expense of the Palestinians. If you went to the second sort of third tier and you thought, well, even in sort of in South Asia to try and mobilize um, Indian support, you can only do it by forgetting about the Muslims in, in, in Kashmir and India itself. So from that point of view, uh, it is very, very difficult in that landscape to where to get external support from. And I think that's, that is a really important um, recognition. But I think the second point that I would like to make is um, to slightly challenge you on the idea that self-determination is a Western concept or because that again is part of this kind of Eurocentric rewriting of the um, struggles against colonialism. The colonialism and European rule everywhere was resisted. It just happens that most of the places outside the Western hemisphere that Europeans exerted rule and they actually did so at the expense of uh, Muslim, um, Muslim regimes, Muslim governments. Um, but the resistance to that was always explicit, even before 
uh, Wilson enshrined it in, 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 or tried to enshrine it in, in the kind of Versailles Treaty uh, or the, for, you know, subsequently the Atlantic Charter. All of these things were giving, about giving self-determination at the most to European minorities. It wasn't meant to be, or white minorities, it wasn't meant to be a general principle. But it belied the fact so, that there was always resistance. So for example, when you look at the history of the rebellions in, in Western, uh, in, in places like Brazil or other parts of the Americas, uh, led by Muslims involving mainly ex-Muslims who had been enslaved they do this in the name of exactly what you said. You know, what is it? What is uh, what is the end? What is the result of what do they want? You know, what is the meaning of uh, Izadi for them was also la ilaha They wanted the end of that. They didn't want to constantly frame themselves in the kind of architecture which was available to them. So I think all of that, you know, is absolutely makes particular sense in these kind of conditions. The third point that I would want to make around this is what you said about the um, people in the valley. This is one of the kind of canards um, people often say about, well, why is it that Muslims care about Palestine, even though they don't even know where it is on the map? Or why is it um, they care about um, uh, Kashmir or the Rohingya or the Uyghurs or the Chechens or the Bosnians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can multiply these examples. The point is that Muslims do, or even, you know, what's happening in France. Why did um, shopkeepers in Jordan stop selling French goods? Now, people see this as somehow artificial. Uh, when I say people, I see kind of Western commentators and Orientalists, uh, many of them who are, you know, not necessarily Western, see this in terms of something inexplicable. When in fact, what that tells you is the politicization, the political awareness and the political consciousness among Muslims. If I am only interested in furthering my narrow interest, so for example, if I only care about what happens to me or my family, that's not a political concern. A political concern is when it becomes generalized. Um, if I don't have, um, if I lose my job and I'm upset about it, that's not a political concern. But if I'm concerned about my neighbor losing her job or his job, that becomes political. Um, and that is a political consciousness. So it does, a political consciousness always transcends the immediate situation. So yes, um, um, Kashmiri Muslim in the valley can make those identifications because those identifications are not based on language or ethnicity or, or, or even cultural expressions. They're based on the formation of a political subjectivity. They're based on, in this case, Muslimness. So, you know, if you go to a mosque in Senegal, you may not have been to Senegal, but you would know how to behave. You would know how to uh, act. These kinds of webs of association of Muslimness, which is global rather than national. And one of the most difficult and challenging issues for anyone who wants to improve the lot of Muslims is the way that 
it is important to reduce the effects of Kamalist nationalist thinking with its kind of racialist overtones within Muslim circles. Muslims have to be less national if they want to be more free. And that is why in every single instance of the imposition of tyranny, there is a demand to nationalize Islam. This happens among non-national regimes. So the idea of crafting a national Islam, an Indian Islam, or a French Islam, or a Chinese Islam. But it's also true of Muslim regimes who want to have something which they can control. And the liberatory potential, and I wouldn't put it stronger, and the decolonial potential right now is that Muslimness transcends the national and embraces the global. At a time when the neo-nationalism is, is making headway, it shouldn't be surprising that it fixes upon attacking Muslimness because Muslimness, whether it articulates this consistently or not, is always about the transnational. It wants to be, it is more cosmopolitan in its in its very sense of being. Now to talk like this about Muslimness as being cosmopolitan or as being transnational or being global risks the uh, ire or ridicule of um, a lot of secularists and um, Islamophobes who would never identify that and would want to point, uh, you know, say, well, Islam is always about who decides who's a Muslim and that they miss the point here. Ultimately, the logic of Muslimness is global, and that is what makes it difficult for neo-nationalist projects to contain. Thank you, Professor. And this brings us to the end of the first part of our podcast on Islam, Kashmir and colonialism. The second part will be coming out tomorrow. Do tune in. We shall be continuing this conversation. Thank you for listening.